Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Bijou Banter. Uh, today in the studio is a bunch of regulars on the show. We got me, Calvin Leslie. We've got Matthew Huh. We've got Daniel McGregor-Hire, Harry Westergaard, and Orson Cotton. We're talking about two M movies today. Not that they're rated M, because they start with M. We're talking about Mank and Mulan, and we're going to start with Mulan, the new one, the 2021, which came out uh, the Friday before we're recording this, but December 4th for free on Disney+, Plus, and before that for $30 on Disney+. Plus. It was directed by Nikki Caro, written by Rick Jaffa and Amanda Silver, stars Yifei Lu, Donnie Yen, Lee Gong, Jet Li, and is basically just, it's the live action Mulan. Like there's, that's it. Mulan goes, fights people. What do we think of it? Okay, okay. so here's where I want to start off. I know when we talked about the original Mulan back in like September, I said that I was excited for this. And for me, Mulan as a remake had every right to be a great movie because like it had a serious story at its core. It could translate really well to live action and be sort of like, in a way, sort of an epic East Asian drama. And the trailers seemed really promising and everything. And then it came out and I hated it. I absolutely hated this movie. And I will, I will say this right now, this is the worst Disney live action remake by far. Like no question. Like everyone said Lion King was the worst. This is the worst hands down. The problem is that I commend it for trying to be different. And that's more than I could say for Lion King because Lion King didn't change anything. But this, everything they change is for the absolute worst. They change up the characters. They change up the morals. They change up just everything about it. And none of it is improved. None of it. It takes all the life out of the animation and just craps it out into a lifeless and worthless piece of junk. And not only not only that it's it's it has an all asian cast which is fantastic but it was written by four white people it was directed by a white woman so yeah you got an all asian cast like that's fantastic and for me as an asian that makes me happy because i think we need more um like all asian films in mainstream in mainstream hollywood but if you don't have any of them on the production team it's still kind of whitewashing and it really pissed me off and uh, I, I don't know what else to say. It, someone else talk. I think, yeah, I, I always love when Matthew and I just agree on a movie and we tear it to shreds because you know that's going to be a great episode. This, I, I wrote this in my letterbox review. I, you know, this wasn't one I was even looking forward to really pre-COVID. I was like, you know, I'd probably get around to seeing it when it dropped on Disney Plus eventually. But yeah, this was just a lifeless remake. I, Again, what I can give Lion King, which I thought was at best mediocre, was at least they like stayed true to like what made the original special, but that didn't add anything to that movie. This just takes everything and like gets rid of it. It gets rid of all the fun elements. And I, I, I'm watching this last night and I'm like, this reminds me of other failed Disney projects where they, I don't know if these were like, you know, they had source material, but just lifeless adaptations of like, you know, the Lone Ranger, the Prince of Persia, or um, John Carter. It reminded me of that. Like, it reminded me of a very cheesy, like, early 2000s action movie. The green screen. Oh, my God. That was terrible. It was so noticeable. And, like, the characters running up and down the walls without the proper harnessing equipment. It was driving me crazy. Like, it was so weird. It's just a predictable and forgettable villain who's just evil for the sake of being evil. And another thing, too, which I think would have been cool is that, you know, it's, you know, it's Chinese folklore, the Mulan character. 
I think it should have been a foreign film. I don't know. I feel like if they were speaking Chinese, that would have made me appreciate the movie more. I'm fine with watching subtitles, but when they're speaking English, it just kind of, again, whitewashes it for me. It's kind of like, oh, they're just trying to like, you know, because it's a Disney movie. It's like, no, if, you know, I think that's the issue with having a white creative team being the writers and directors. But if you had someone who's, you know, more authentic to the culture, you can get it right. And I think, yeah, kind of like what Matthew said, because they had white people doing this, it suffered. It, it wasn't authentic. It didn't feel it. That's my take. Yeah, I had to, so before I get into my thoughts about this movie, um, I gotta say my thoughts about um, the original. I really loved the original growing up. Um, I really thought it was a really, um, the main character was very interesting. I really loved the comic relief. I really, the animation I really thought was very different from like the movies that were being released at that time. Um, because there was like a lot of it making it look like, oh yeah, this is something that I would definitely see a Chinese artist doing. And then, and I was really into the fact that they were really exploring some of the culture in the movie, even though it was pretty, in terms of animated film, it was pretty surface level. I really enjoyed that part of it. And then you get this movie. <laughs> I, I honestly, I'm uh, probably the biggest outlier here. I wasted $30 on Disney Plus watching this the first time. And I, and I really regret it. Um, because I honestly had hope for this movie. I really had a lot of hope because it seemed from the trailer, it seemed like it was taking it incredibly seriously, like this tale of Mulan. And it had Nikki Caro, um, who I watched Whale Rider um, probably last week. And it's like, I was impressed by Whale Rider. It's like Nikki Caro really can make, the, make really good stories. And Whale Rider is like a good example of that. But for some reason, that mouse just put his hands right on the movie and just said, okay, we have a quota. Let's follow this quota. We have a checklist right here. We're going to make sure that we're going to appeal to everybody. And I was just super upset when I saw this because it seemed like every live action remake, it was so disposable. It was so processed. Like you can see that Disney's at this point where it's like, yeah, we're not going to try anymore. All those innovative animated films we made in the past, but we have all this money now and we're going to remake these movies and we're still going to remake it for even more money. I, can, I felt so greedy watching this movie because it, there is just a studio quota that I feel like they're following every single time and they're limiting a lot of the creative directors that were brought on. And because Nikki Caro has a style and... I actually do give credit to this movie that at least some of that style does pull through. Like I really like the cinematography in this movie from um, cinematographer Mandy Walker because I really thought some of the shots are very atmospheric. But the biggest issue to me is, it's probably the biggest issue is his character and writing. The character of Mulan is so uninteresting here. And which is, Comparing it to the original, the, uh, the original, at least her character was funny and somebody who didn't, who had a really good arc to get into. Here, her arc, I cannot get into. It's such a bad story arc that it seems processed. She doesn't grow throughout the course of the movie. She just has this 
chi and just has this and this already is a perfect character and it's like if you try to make a character without flaws they become really uninteresting which is the biggest issue with these live action remakes is that these characters have they may look interesting and they may act they may be shown interesting but on paper they just are very one note and very cliched and it was super boring to watch this character because it was like a it was literally I said this in my letterbox review it was like a rice cake came to life and just started to act and I give credit to the actress this cannot be an easy role to do but she was just so boring and I'm not sure if it was the direction I'm not sure if it was production notes but she just looked super bored throughout this entire movie and the side characters were very un or very forgettable and there was no chemistry between any of them or Mulan because that's the thing that the original had because the original at least for the comic relief you got to see a lot of chemistry between those characters and it was just a really boring remake I'm with Matthew saying yeah this is the worst remake out of all the live action Disney remakes I just couldn't stand this movie and I really regret seeing it a second time all right then uh I um I'm gonna preface this by saying I didn't particularly enjoy the movie however I didn't think it was the worst thing I'd ever seen I thought the writing wasn't great but I also think part of that is just because I'm not a big fan I mean like the dialogue is pretty awful but I'm also not a big fan of the original Mulan. But parts of it were kind of fun. Like, it has some problems, but the action scenes were kind of fun. And I thought the effects were pretty good, Orson. Where where was, like, I didn't see any green screen. Oh, like, the, I, I had watched a review beforehand, and the reviewer said, you're going to notice it right away. And I was like, oh, whoa, right away? And, like, you notice it right away. Like, when the characters are riding horses or, like, even a couple times when they're training you can just tell like okay it's someone standing in front of a green screen but those weren't as bad like even the third act like when everything's kind of going down it was just terrible I was so you know shocked because Disney sat on this movie for like five months you know when COVID hit so I'm surprised somebody didn't watch it and go you know what we can fix this we can spend you know a month or two just doing a couple more edits so that surprised me a lot I think for that, they paid way too much attention to, because if there's one, if there's anything I can give this movie credit for, is that I think the set design, not the green screen, the green screen is terrible, and the editing is awful, but the actual set design, I think, is very good. Like, these sets are very colorful and feel very authentic to some degree, but yeah, it's like when you have, like, the sky and them, and, like, especially in that fight scene near the end with Mulan fighting the main villain on the, um, what, what even was that it looked like a construction site basically it looks so bad it looks like a playstation 3 game uh, oh, an early playstation 3 game nonetheless like it just it looks so digital and fake and coming off of lion king like i like to me one of the best things about lion king were the effects the effects in the like the um the background stuff were very impressive and it felt kind of real but that wasn't seen here and this movie cost 200 million dollars to make like where did all the money go to like, seriously, where did all the money go to? Probably the biggest funny thing I actually laughed at during the movie, and it was, I think you guys know what team I'm talking about. It's like when she's riding on the horse back to the village, 
And then she looks down and there's CGI rabbits running beside her. I just laughed out loud once I saw that. It's like, okay, this looks realistic. Then all of a sudden those rabbits come in and just make me just, just take me out of it. And I just start to laugh at it. Like, holy crap, though, that was a really bad effect. I mean, true, the rabbits were pretty bad, but some of the effects were pretty good. Like all the things with like that new villain, the like witch person, hawk, bird, lady, that all looked fine, I thought, at any rate. The thing that really made me upset about that character, and this happened in Hocus Pocus 2, and I think I even said it in the review, I hate it when movies take a villain or a side character villain, and like they do evil things throughout the film, but then towards like the end of the second act, beginning of the third act, it's like, hey, by the way, I'm actually good. And it's like, you are? Like, you were doing terrible things throughout it. Like, that's what the zombie character did in Hocus Pocus. This is what this witch character did. And I'm like, I don't know. It just sounds very, like, I mean, it's very Disney. I'm not surprised. You can go back and watch these Disney movies from, like, the 90s and early 2000s, and it's there. So I was surprised they went with that level. And with a character that's not even in the original. That's the whole thing that I was surprised about was, like, they took out so many of the things that made the original special and made us love it. And they're like, no. We're going to go completely different with tone, style, everything. I think that just made the movie so bland and boring. Well, it, it, it did you think you go back to that? Because like tone-wise, it is more serious. I put that in quotes because this is a PG-13 movie, which is shocking because that, that side character villain is like something out of a G-rated Disney film. It's, it doesn't make the audience think. It just spells it out more for you and is more childish. Like, do the, does the audience think that we're like two or something? It's rated PG-13. Like you have Which all this like That's kind of what I have to ask too is who is this movie meant for? Because it's clearly not meant for younger kids. But I think Disney's I, I, we're smart enough to know when we see a bad movie. So I can't imagine this is meant for older audiences. So it's like, okay, who are you trying to make this for? Like young teenagers? But, I don't know. But even if you're trying to make it for young kids, why would you show your kid this when you can show them the original Mulan? The original Mulan is so much better. Like, that's the problem with these remakes, too, is that, yeah, some of them aren't bad. Like, I think the Jungle Book remake is an improvement over the original, which I think is pretty rare. But it's like, what about Beauty and the Beast? What about Aladdin? What about Lion King? Why would you show your kid these remakes when the original is on Disney Plus on the same streaming service? Just show them that. It's a much better movie. And speaking of change, the thing that really pissed me off about this remake is the change to Mulan's character. And because Mulan in the original, she goes to, to war to fight for her family, not because she has a magic BS power, but because she wanted to save her father. Her father was dying and she knew that she would not last long in the war. And her, despite being a woman, risked her life and her basically her reputation to go in, go into the army to fight. In this movie, she has chi, which they try to add in like all these elements of the Chinese culture into this crappy script. And it's not respectful at all. It's just, you're using the elements of the culture as a plot point and a bad plot point too. So not only that, like she has this power that she hides and basically the movie is saying, you can't be great unless you have a power that makes you even greater. And I'm just like, what kind of message is that? I understand this is not for little children, but it's still such a horrible message that goes against the entire, like, you know, morality of Mulan's character that made her so great. She didn't need to rely on powers. She, she was just, she went in because she was herself and she was, loyal, brave, and true, which none of that is seen in this remake's character. I, uh, I've got a, I've got a couple <laughs> pushbacks here. You're fine. Um, 
I feel like, she, like, even though they did give her this chi, which I'll admit was horribly, like, disrespectful and just was an excuse to make her good at kicking things, um, which she was very good at kicking things in a stupid way, but she was very good. Um, I think her character overall is the same. Like, I feel like the reason she went out and did all this stuff is still the same thing. It just, like, made her look cooler doing it. Like, I don't think she would, wouldn't have done it's not it. not for the right reason, though. That's the problem. She did it to protect her father. It was exactly the same as the first. But she still had the power, like, in that opening scene. She's she's jumping over buildings and stuff. Like, it's like she's doing parkour over the pagodas and stuff. It's like, yeah, we obviously established that she has this power. And it's like, that's just another convenience for the plot. And also, it's just another reason for her to go out to the war. That was not seen in the original. You didn't need that added. You didn't need to add that. The, in the original, they, you know, this is obviously geared towards a more female audience. And that's what I think this did well. I think it did, in a way, have a good female lead, even though the character was, you know, pretty underdeveloped and stale. It's still nice to see Disney was able to produce, you know, this female-led movie. But I feel like with having Mulan be special with, like, the supernatural ability, when in the original she's just a normal person, it goes against the message that any women can, you know, be like Mulan, where it's like, no. In this version, you gotta be special. Other than that, you don't make the cut. It's like, what is that saying to like anybody, if that makes sense? No, but not only what is that saying, but also it's like, she's basically like, she, she she's power, not, not powerless. It's like, she's almost too powerful. She has no weakness. Mulan in the original, because she didn't have that power was more vulnerable. So we cared more for her. This is just like Rey in the Star Wars trilogy. Exactly. She's like, yeah, she's like, Rey is a, basically this all powerful Jedi that like has this power that quote, no one has ever seen before. How are we supposed to relate? How can we be like Ray? We don't have this power. We're not like an all powerful God essentially. So it's like, we can't relate to this character. And honestly, I don't, I don't care for her. I don't care if Mulan dies because she, she has no weakness. I'm, a, I'm gonna hop in real quick. I've got a, I've got a few things to say. First of all, uh, I was about to bring up Star Wars actually, because I was going to mention that her like having this alternate power and how we can't relate to it. That's not true. Like Luke Skywalker is some schmuck who's really good with the force and can fly starfighters. But and... he had to learn. Ray didn't need to oh, learn anything. I'm not talking about Ray right now. I'm talking about Mulan. But like throughout oh. the whole movie or like Anakin Skywalker, for example, like throughout the whole movie, they're like, he's very powerful with the force. And every main character in Star Wars is either powerful with the force or hypothesized to be powerful with the force. Like, None of us have the force, but we can all relate to that. Every superhero movie, they all have special powers and they're all like, we still relate to Superman and he's literally God sometimes. Like, I don't think adding a special power to a main character makes them unrelatable. I think it's perfectly fine. I think the special power they added in this case was stupid because it was just her being able to kick things more and it was disrespectful. Um, but like, I don't know. And in terms of yeah. Ray, like, it was kind of dumb she could do the Jedi mind trick right away, but also she had just as much explanation for her power as Luke, more so because her dad was Palpatine at the end of the day, but I don't know. I do I do see where you're coming from, but the issue I have with that is that Disney was trying to claim that we're going to make this very serious and very realistic. We're not going to have Mushu. We're not going to have the cricket. We're not going to have any of the songs or any of the supposed magic or fantasy elements that the original had. So they're trying to ground it in reality, which I, I can respect to some degree. But when you add that, that is just purely supernatural and purely like fan, like a fantasy element at that rate, even though I know Chi is part of the Chinese mythology, but it's used more just like a superpower. So it takes me out of that too. 
this movie kind of, I mean, I did say earlier, reminded me of like other early 2000s Disney projects. This also kind of reminded me of like when another studio buys the rights to a movie Disney's done, but they do their own take on it. Like we've seen a couple Robin Hood, I'm not saying Disney owns Robin Hood, but like, you know, they've got the classic animated Robin Hood where he's the fox or whatever. But we've also seen like other Robin Hoods over the past couple of years where like they take this more grounded, serious tone with it. Those have failed. And the one that really came, or Tarzan, Tarzan came out a couple of years ago, that failed. One that really came to mind because it was another Disney live action adaptation, but then Netflix or maybe it was Warner Brothers went and bought the rights to the, the Jungle Book movie. And they did their own like darker take on it a couple of years ago. And I was like, why are you making this story that like doesn't need to be dark, but it has like darker elements in the story, but it, you know, you're, that's what you're pushing to the forefront. And that's what Mulan has, even though it has more intense scenes in the original animated version, it was still a relatively lighthearted movie, but you're taking this property and you're like, no, we're getting rid of all of that and we're making this more serious. And I think that just worked against it really hard. I, uh, I sort of agree. I think I kind of liked the darker tone just because I, that was sort of what I liked in the original Mulan. Like I liked the songs, but I don't know. I was, it's probably just my latent toxic masculinity, but I like action movies and war movies and I like it when they fight more. Which, by the way, I feel like that's the only reason a parent would ever like show this when the original was on Disney Plus. I feel like it's a compromise to just let the kids like one wants to watch Iron Man, one wants to watch Cinderella, and you're like, we'll watch Mulan 2020. That's that's all I get. Yeah, going back to the character Mulan, um, I really I really agree with Matthew on that. Um, I mean. I- because, I mean, at least with Ray, Daisy Ridley at least gave a good enough performance that, you know, like, people can actually admire a little bit more of the aspect of her performance, even though, yeah, her character is pretty Mary Sue, but, I mean, at least she kind of betrayed that emotion. The actress playing Mulan, I never, I don't think I've ever seen her in anything, but it's like, she doesn't really give enough character to really make Mulan stand out. Um, and it really upset, like, it really upset me because, like, the original, um, who was uh, played by Ming-Na Wen, who I think may, some of you may know, like she was in uh, Ancients of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, as one of like the side characters. And she was also also in The Mandalorian, believe it or not. Um, cameo in this. She introduces Mulan when she like walks up to the Emperor. Which is I so distracting that. and not needed. Yeah. Cameos are always distracting and not needed. They're nice. Not really. If it's not so blatant, like that was just a really blatant cameo. Yeah, but um, aside from that, like, but Ming Na Wen gave Mulan a really good personality, like, really had a lot of emotion to the performance because she wasn't too worried about necessarily being a warrior. She wanted to, she had a goal in mind. She wanted to, to protect her father and kind of take his role and take his role in the army. And I really, and I, and I liked the parts where she was trying to be a man. Like she, that was really funny. Like when she's trying to fit in and her chemistry with the, the three side characters and really that it made it really funny. And then her relationship with Wei Sheng, her relationship with Mushu. And even like in the climax, she really had a really good, like she was very ideal and like the way she thought like, okay, how am I gonna get out of the situation? Here, it's like, 
there's never really any high stakes situations that she's in that I was very intrigued with. I mean, yeah, she faced the witch at one point, but that was only for a few minutes and she faced Jason Scott Lee. And it's like, there wasn't really anything that I would say that really made me feel like I'm, oh, I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm going to be intrigued with what this character is going to try, how and how she's going to get out of this situation. And I just didn't feel that because she just looks so wooden. I just couldn't get into this character. And I just really just didn't like that at all. There was the scene when she was fighting the witch where she's like standing on the lake and it's pretty classic. You know, the lake's going to crack. You see the cracks. And I was like, oh man, is this going to crack and she's going to fall in? It never cracks. I was like, why <laughs> do you have that then? Because you, the audience is smart enough to assume since it's a pretty cliche thing in movies. I was like, why would you have that if you're not going to make the lake crack? It doesn't add anything, you know, for the scene you're trying to build if you don't have it break and the character falls in and almost drowns. That would have added like some intensity. It's like, oh, she's hurt and she can't get out or something. I don't know. It was weird to have that. I, I think going, you go ahead. Oh yeah, just going back to the the cast, like uh, the main actress that plays Milan, Yufe, what, what's her name? Yufei Liu, I think is her name. Yeah, she's so wooden and boring. It's like an Anakin Skywalker Hayden Christensen performance. It's like it might even be a little worse because she has no emotion at all throughout this entire film. It's so one note. It's so boring. It's so uninteresting. And like. I, I totally agree with what Daniel said. Like Mulan had a lot of personality and she added a lot, not only to the movie, but to that character. Like nothing, none of that is seen in, in this interpretation of the character. She's just like, she's nothing. And considering this cast is all Asian too, I feel like so many of them are just like wasted. Like there's not really a standout performance in this entire movie, which is a shame because these actors are all super talented and super well-known amongst Chinese cinema. Like, it's crazy. They, like, Jet Li is the emperor for crying out loud. It's like, and I get it, the emperor is not like really a main character, but it's like, why do you have him as the emperor? He doesn't do much. And like, Donnie Yen is in it too, who I barely remember. Uh, Z Ma, Jason Scott Lee. It's like, this is a, a loaded Chinese cast, which is amazing for a Disney movie, especially one made in Hollywood. It's like, you don't do anything with them. Why did you get all these actors if you're just gonna like, they're essentially props. They don't do anything, why? Yeah. Yeah, I was disappointed in a lot of a lot of the roles. I think Jet Li was a fine choice for the Emperor just because like he's not in it a lot and you gotta get somebody famous because then you care more. But Donnie Yen was wasted, I love Donnie Yen. <laughs> I've only seen him in like one thing, but he's still really cool in that one thing. That one thing being Star Wars. Um, yeah, I think we're almost out of time though for Mulan, which is a shame because we all have so okay. much to say on it. But yeah, final thoughts on Mulan 2020? I'll go ahead and start it off. <laughs> I'm gonna give it a solid C plus. I didn't very much enjoy this film. There were some action set pieces that I thought were kind of cool, but they gave up. Like, they gave up the Forbidden City fight from the original, and that was disappointing because I really liked that set piece. And the minor cast didn't get a lot to work with. But, it, it, like, it was the only live-action Disney remake I've actually seen. And I thought that overall, I don't know, I'd probably revisit it about as much as I'd revisit the original, which isn't much. The only thing I really like about the original was the like avalanche scene and I'll make a man out of you and the forbidden city scene. 
but it, I don't know. I didn't For hate me, it as much as everybody else. Oh, was, oh shoot, sorry. Oh, you uh, Yeah, uh, it was a colossal disappointment. And I say that because this had every right and so much potential to be the best Disney live action remake. Like it really could have been just given the amount of talent in the cast, the potential of adapting this to a live action medium with a more serious, even adult tone. I think this honestly could have been a breakthrough movie, kind of like what Black Panther did for like African-American diversity and culture in mainstream Hollywood cinema. This could have been the same for Chinese like Americans, but it is an absolute failure and an absolute catastrophe. The story is awful. The writing is awful. Most of the acting is awful. It's not entertaining. It's flat out insulting to both the original movie and to the Chinese culture in some degree. And it not only just makes me appreciate the original like way more than I already did, because I just want to make clarify, I'm not a, a huge fan of the original. I like it, but I have issues with it. But this this movie makes the original look like Citizen Kane. Like I just have this huge appreciation for it that I ever had. And this remake brings nothing but dishonor to its family tree. I'm giving it a two out of 10. Oof. Yeah, this isn't the worst movie I've seen this year. There may be like one or two that I've disliked more, but this, yeah, was a disappointment. I think, you know, kind of what Matthew just said, this could have been like the Black Panther for the Disney movies. But like, what's interesting is like, you know, whether you've seen the other ones and like you don't like them or you do like them, you can't deny they're all very impressive for what they were able to do, especially The Lion King and The Jungle Book. So it's a weird that this was like a huge step down from what we've seen before. And I said it before and I'll say it again, this felt like a cheesy early 2000s action movie. It was like, you know, we're past all the slow motion and the blur effects. That's not impressive anymore. This isn't The Matrix. So, you know, Hopefully Disney is and Marvel are able to pull off Shang-Chi, which comes out, I think, next year, 2022. That's another, you know, Asian-led film. Luckily, they've got an Asian filmmaking team behind it. So hopefully they can pull it off. But yeah, this was just very disappointing. Yeah, I, I hated this movie. I just, apart from um, the cinematography and the production design i just didn't like this movie it was very boring it was very stale the main every aspect i was from the original was taken away and i the main character just really frustrated me to no end and i just didn't like this movie i just couldn't stand it let's move on to mank <laughs> indeed let's uh yeah, also, I want to amend my rating a little bit. I think it's definitely a C minus. I don't know why I said B minus. <laughs> being defensive. Um, I forgot about the terrible dialogue and just like how it doesn't care at all about anything. But anyway, let's move on to a movie that I'm sure most of the people in this room liked more uh, Mank, which is a new Netflix film starring Gary Oldman, Lily Collins, Amanda Seyfried, and a couple other people. Uh, it's directed by David Fincher, written by Jack Fincher, and it's about uh, Herman J. Mankiewicz and how he wrote Citizen Kane, not Orson Welles, and how everybody hated him, and he was an outcast, but he was a right god. Uh, what do we think? I'll just start, since I didn't have anything to say about the previous film. Uh, yeah, so Mank, I kind of came with a lot of baggage for me, at least, um, since I'm a big Orson Welles fan. And it also came, I think, with 
uh, a kind of uproar on Twitter, at least uh, among the people I follow, because it's bringing back this largely discredited, um, factually inaccurate uh, claim brought up by Pauline Kael in the 70s in her Raising Cain essay that, you know, uh, you know, Citizen Kane, the best known, or probably the greatest movie ever to come out of the Hollywood studio system. Well, actually, one of our guys wrote it, not the independent Orson Welles. Um, and again, this essay, I could go on about how inaccurate it is, you know, for the whole duration of this, uh, you know, listeners can go read up information on that themselves. Um, but yeah, it, basically, it's just another kind of uh, instance of Wells bashing, which for me, at least, is just really tiresome. He's a, you know, once in a century talent. Uh, but to talk about Mank, uh, you know, the movie itself, um, kind of as much as we can, you know, dismissing all of that temporarily, I, I just think it's like a really boring film. Like, I wish I had a more interesting thing to, uh, way to describe it, but it it's just boring. Um, I'm not a fan of the look of the movie. I know that kind of a lot of people have said, oh, it's a David Fincher movie, so at least it looks good. And yes, the shots are, you know, blocked and framed in prof a professional way, but I don't like the flat black and white digital look of the film. It's trying so hard to capture the look and feel of a 40s Hollywood film, but it can't get, I can't get past the fact that it just looks like somebody um, did a black and white old tiny filter with the real changing markers um, in certain scenes on it to make it look like an old tiny film. You know, it just, it looks like a film student's idea of what an old film looks like. And the sound also, I'm not fond of. I kept thinking something was wrong with my speakers for the first like 20 minutes because it has this muffled um, kind of filter over the sound to make it sound like an old movie. Um, and I, that just got on my nerves. I was just like, you know, I think all of this is just, you know, Fincher and co hiding behind all of these like, you know, really bad stylistic um, cliches to try to go or to try to hide the fact that the script really isn't that good. Um, it's told in a nonlinear story and in a nonlinear fashion, which to me doesn't really see to serve any purpose. Like I think you could have gotten the same thing out of the movie if it had started at the beginning, and if we had ended, you know, with that awful scene between Wells and Mank, which hopefully we can get to later, because I hated that. Um, yeah, and the score, I love Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. I think they've done great things with, um, you know, Fincher in the past on, like, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and all those films. Uh, you know, I don't like the score. Again, it sounds like the stock, like, you know, iMovie, uh, old Hollywood music. Like, it's just the most cliche thing from, you know, I think one of the better composing teams working today, like, I, and Gary Oldman's performance, again, you know, I'm, in general, kind of tired of him, I think, I've kind of seen everything I think he has to offer, and Mank doesn't make a good case that, uh, for him, because he's just so tired and sedated the whole way through, and there are ways to play that, that are interesting, and, Gary Oldman doesn't do any of that. It's just a really bored, careless performance. And I just had so much trouble, like, 
you know, aside from all the baggage I'm obviously bringing, I had so much trouble connecting to Mank as a main character. The screenplays talking him up at all these, uh, you know, all the other characters are just talking about how great he is. And then Gary Oldman just gives one of the most boring, lackadaisical performances, you know, I've seen in a long time on a movie that's supposed to be, you know, Oscar bait for him. So, yeah, uh, I did not like Mank, if you couldn't tell. I'm glad someone else felt the same way I did about this. It was just, again, I didn't go in with like high hopes. I mean, I have a special connection with the film for uh, some reasons, but yeah, you know, I, I don't get the point of like kind of what Harry said, just bashing Orson Welles. He's a very, you know, talented filmmaker. Again, maybe he was a terrible person. I don't know, you know, with everything that's come out about filmmakers over the past couple of years, I haven't heard anything about him, you know. I think he's renowned for probably not being the, the nicest guy, but he was still able to get things done with what he was able to do. So like coming over, it really just seemed like Fincher had like, you know, a gripe with Orson Welles. And it's like, no, we're going to make him seem like this terrible guy. When on the other hand, Mank is not really the nicest person either. So you're like, who are we supposed to root for on this? Like the filmmaker that actually had this huge mark on history and cinema, or like, I hate to say it like this, this washed up drunk. It was very weird. And yeah, it was, you know, kind of what Harry said with the, the style and with the vibe of the movie, the look. I think it wore off like 20 to 30 minutes in. It was like, oh, okay. You know, I get it. Like it kind of looks cool at first, but the movie is just so slow and boring. And it's like, okay, now it's really wearing off. And it's just a lot of characters talking. And I wrote this in my review. It feels like I needed to know a lot of this beforehand. It didn't really set up. This is who this is. This is what's going on in this time. This is, you know, the politics of what's going on. It felt like I needed to know before going in and I'm watching this and I'm like, I have no idea what they're talking about. They're trying to explain it. But A, the dialogue is so slow and sloppy. Or not sloppy, but just, you know, it's uninteresting. It's not, you know, getting me to connect to the film. It's not in an Aaron Sorkin type way. If Aaron Sorkin did this, maybe it would be better. I don't know. It feels very different for a David Fincher movie where he goes with like these drama thrillers. This just seemed like a boring drama. So I was just, yeah, really bored with this. And like, also one thing I wanted to point out was there's a scene towards the end where they're like, you've got 13 days to finish this script. And then it's like, oh man, I got 13 days. And then it cuts to the next scene. It's like, okay, I finished it. And it's like, you did? Like, it's like 20 minutes cut out or something. How did this happen? Like he's been working on it for what? Like 40 or so days. And now he can, he can only get 90 pages, which I don't know, maybe it was different back then, but like 90 pages, that could still be like a feature length movie. But like, yeah, now it's like, okay, I finished it miraculously. I was like, okay, it feels like something's missing. So yeah, I, and the non-linear storyline was just so confusing because it's jumping back and forth. And I'm like, just either, I don't know, it was just weird. And yeah, I was very bored with this and disappointed, even though I didn't really have that high of hopes. I, I think I'm, I, I kind of agree with Orson and Harry, but I think I'm a, I'm a little more, I, I enjoyed a little bit more. For me, Mank was one of my most anticipated of, of like the latter half of 2020. So maybe that's, that could be a reason why I really, I haven't seen a lot of David Fincher movies, but the ones I have, I really love. I really love Fight Club. It's one of my favorite movies. And The Social Network, despite having issues with it, is one of the more interesting uh, biopics of the past like decade, I'd say. It's a really interesting story. So when I heard he was gonna tackle the story of the Citizen Kane script, I'm like, wow, that seems awesome. And I really like the first half. I think the first half is, very well done and like we establish okay he's writing this script and then we're going to flash back to his life in a way it parallels the plot structure of Citizen Kane which I'm like that is really really interesting but then as it goes on I agree it gets really really boring and really tired like tiresome in a way the scenes 
in the second, like even in, like, looking back in the first half and the second half, it's just like they go on for way longer than they have to. They repeat a lot of the same like plot points. And even if you like, especially for someone, if you've watched Citizen Kane, like you understand like every single beat in Herman Mankiewicz's life parallels to Charles Foster Kane. And it's an interesting idea, but I don't think it's executed as well as it sounds. And like, I, th I think the saving grace of it is, I have to disagree. I think the visual style, like the, the black and white cinematography is gorgeous. I think it works really, really well. And I kind of like how it does feel like a forties film, similar to how um, Ed Wood, the 1994 Tim Burton movie is a biopic on uh, Edward D. Wood Jr. But it feels like a 50s film from the dialogue, the set design, the cinematography. Mank does a similar thing too. And I, I love the music. I love the production design. And there's some, like some of the like, like lighting, I think is a little distracting. Like there's one scene where Mank and uh, Marion Davis, they're walking like a garden. It's clearly supposed to be night, but it looks like it's, it's daytime for some reason. Just like, what's going on here? And there's some really like bad CG in some places. Like there's like these two CGI giraffes and it looks so ridiculous, but I think like stuff like that is, it kind of took me out of it. And I think it could have either been cut down a lot or like paced a little bit better. It doesn't really flow as well as it should. But overall, I'd, I think it's it's fine. I, I was rather disappointed by it, but I still enjoyed it to some degree. I am, I've never been happier that I have people agreeing with me in the, uh, in banter. I was sure everybody was really gonna love it. And I watched this movie and I thought it was spectacularly boring and just like nothing happens for two hours and 15 minutes, which is so weird because David Fincher, like I like David Fincher. I love the social network fight club, I think is a little overhyped, but like, it's a solid movie. And Zodiac, Zodiac is like three hours long and it felt like 90 minutes. Like it is one of my favorite movies just because it keeps getting weirder and cooler and it feels like that. But like, it drags on so much and nothing happens and I can't remember who any of the characters are because we spend five minutes with them and maybe maybe they should spend more than 10 minutes with Orson Welles and five minutes with the guy who Citizen Kane is supposed to be based on if you want me to care at all during this movie um I the style um I think it was shot nicely like the cinematography was fine uh the like I think the only thing it got like accurate about a 40s movie where sometimes the editing was like relatively accurate, except they just always used a fade to black, which is boring. And a lot of 40s movies, I guess, did that. But come on, you can do more than that. Um, some of the dialogue was very much like from a 40s movie. And like the sound when it first happened, I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then I said, oh, that's going to go on through the whole movie. And it would have been fine if they had just dedicated to shooting it like it was actually a movie shot in the 40s and like shot it on similar film and shot it in like a similar aspect ratio and didn't shoot it in digital 4k maybe i would have felt a little bit better about it but it was so weird to hear like that muted sort of deafness coming from gary oldman's fine performance like he did good but he wasn't given anything to work with and then just to have him like in stunning 4k drinking liquor <sighs> i didn't like this movie much at all anyway daniel what do you think I'm probably going to be a huge minority. I actually liked this movie. <laughs> um, and I, probably some background before we actually get into this. Apparently, this was written by uh, 
Venture's father, early 90s, um, he was very in, uh, inspired by um, Pauline Kael's essay, Raising Cain, which Harry mentioned before, which is basically about um, how Kale thinks that Mankiewicz deserves more of the credit than Cain did. Even though I don't entirely agree with the essay, um, I have to say that I would say Mankiewicz did have as much of a part in Susan Cain as Orson Welles did. Um, but apparently, um, Jack Fincher wanted this movie to be released um, in the 90s, but it was unfortunately shelved. It couldn't get out, and Jack Fincher eventually died from a long battle of cancer in 2001. So probably about, so this movie was released probably about 20, 20, 30 years later, actually, when you think about it, I think, yeah, 30 years later. And I, I have to admit, I do, I actually did enjoy Gary Oldman's performance in this movie. I thought he had a lot of wit with what he was given. He was trying to kind of make it seem like Mankiewicz himself, like giving a, a little bit of humor. Um, I really like Seyfried's performance as Marion Davies. Louis um, Collins did a pretty good job. Um, but I think the thing I actually did admire about this movie was um, a lot of the analysis of this era um, during the Great Depression and what really inspired Mankiewicz to really um, write this screenplay. Um, because I think I'm very into this history of Susan Cain. I mean, and I know viewers won't see this, but I have a box set in front of me of like Citizen Kane itself. Um, I mean, I, I really adore like the original film and yeah, it's pretty cliche like to say, yeah, it is It is one of the greats of all time. I mean, even though it is very cliche to say, but I do, I really enjoyed like how and analyzed this era and how like it, all the events that happen in Mankiewicz's life while he's, with MGM while why he's when he's working with uh, Louis B. Mayer and his relationship with Randolph first, I really found this very interesting. Um, because you can kind of see he 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 was a big outlier in Hollywood at the time, and not a lot of people really talk about Mankiewicz when they think of Citizen Kane. They talk more about Orson Welles, and so and while I don't agree with like Pauline Kael's essay on Mankiewicz um like saying that oh Orson Welles doesn't really deserve the credit like Orson Welles did have a big part in it but back to the movie itself um I really liked like I said I really liked the performances um Reznor and Ross's score was pretty well done the cinematography was distracting a bit I mean I do admit with agree with Harry and Calvin while saying like the 4k is just too obvious. I mean, I don't get the idea about shooting this in 4K. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm guessing it's the guessing it's 2020. Like, oh yeah, we got to shoot 4K. Um, and yeah, the sound mixing was a bit distracting for me. But I do, I really did like the fact that it did try to bring a new perspective um, on the story, and this did feel like a different story that Fincher wouldn't have wrote written because well, it was written by his dad. So I really found that personal touch interesting. But in terms of the movie, I, I did like it. I wouldn't say it's Fincher's best though, but I'm, but I, I did enjoy it. Geez, I didn't know it was written by his father who died of cancer. Now I feel awful. <laughs> Um, I still think no, you don't have to. You don't have to because originally he wanted Kevin Spacey to star in it, so it's it's fine. <laughs> I don't know. I think this. I think Fincher's like 
at his best when he's working with a bit more of a polished screenplay. And again, like, I'm not trying to like attack his father or anything, but I just think like, that's for me, the one of the biggest problems with the movie is that it's just not giving me a whole lot to engage with in these characters. And, you know, on the whole topic, it's like, you know, outside of uh, kind of my own gripes with that, you know, annoying idea that like oh yeah wells doesn't deserve as much credit on this it's like at least pauline kale is a fun writer to read like even if i'm reading something angry that like makes me angry because it's wrong i at least you know enjoy her prose style and i just don't enjoy the way this movie's like written or the way that it looks and i might be able to forgive some of those other things if it just gave me a little bit more to latch on to with the characters i will say though that one thing I found interesting in the film was the thread of plot about uh, Upton Sinclair um, and how they kind of made all these like fake newsreels to uh, smear him in the election. It's a really obvious like attempt to kind of parallel it to and link it to the present. But I also think that like the, um, you know, way it kind of portrayed this, uh, you know, fear or vilifying of socialism was really interesting. Um, and that was something where I was like, if they had like made the movie a little bit more about this, like, I think I would be a lot more interested in it again. And again, I don't know how historically accurate that portion is. I don't know how hip to socialism, you know, Mank was or whatever, but I, I was like, you know, I, I, if this was like the main focus of the movie or took up more of the movie's runtime than just like a 10 or 15 minute subplot, uh, I would be really, I think, a lot more on board with it. And I wanted more, you know, Bill Nye as Sinclair. Like, that would have been, like, a. it was obviously a bit part because it might have been distracting. But, like, I think that could have been a lot of fun if we had more scenes between the two of them. I think that's the problem is that it doesn't focus on, you know, as Calvin was kind of saying, some of those side characters who I think could have made the movie more engaging. Like, I wanted more Hearst. He's just kind of there being Charles Dance and looking like a devious you know, British person for a lot of the scenes. He doesn't really do that much. And then I, you know, more Wells too, but I really didn't like the actor they had playing him. I thought he was awful, but. Yeah, he was pretty bad. He was fine at the beginning. And then like towards the end when he actually had to do things, it fell apart. Also, I think the problem as Upton Sinclair, perfect. It was extremely distracting, but it was my It made no part. sense. Made I'm no sense lie. at all, but I kind of liked it. I'm not going to lie. I saw a letterbox review that said Bill Nye's in it before I watched them. I'm like, oh, Bill Nye's in the movie. That's interesting. Didn't even notice him once in it. I think that goes to show how bored I was. I didn't even notice it was him. And I like recognize Bill Nye, obviously, even though he's older than as we know him as kids, probably. But I think something I found an issue with as you know, obviously, an aspiring writing uh, writer, director, and producer, they really are slamming Orson Welles in this. And, you know, I think what I found interesting, I think they say in the film, he was around 24 years old at the time. He was obviously very young when he came into Hollywood. You know, they made him seem like he was this giant Hollywood mogul. And like, maybe he was, I don't know. I obviously didn't live back then. And, you know, like I said, he did come in and he was like, you know, the hot new director, but I got a lot of parallels to Harvey Weinstein a little bit, not the sexual allegations aspect, but like this guy controls everything. And again, Maybe he did. I don't know. But I was like, you're really trying to like vilify him here. And another thing too, is the whole point of the movie is like, this guy was the real genius behind Citizen Kane. They literally say at the end of the movie when Orson Welles, I think it's either when he, yeah, he calls Mank. He's like, your script is good for a first draft. 
a movie goes through like many drafts when you're writing it. So it's possible like, you know, again, I said earlier, they say 90 pages is not even out of the first act. 90 pages is what a lot of movies are, you know, written to be nowadays. So again, maybe it's written different then. I think they say his final draft was around like 320 pages. It's possible Orson Welles went in and like cut it down to like 200 or something. I don't know. We don't know because like they were even describing scenes at the beginning of the movie when Mank started driving. And I'm like, did that happen in the movie? I don't really recall that. I can kind of see where like, maybe like that was the idea, but then the final product. And another thing too, I hate to say it to not discredit any writers, but you know, you're a writer. It's really the director's vision of the movie of what it's going to be. Cause they're the ones doing it. They, you know, unless you're like an executive producer, which this guy clearly wasn't, you just, you sell the script. It's your job to write it out. And it's the director, actor, and producer in the studio to make sure that they want to make the movie that they want to make. So they can change it. And they clearly make that known throughout the film that Orson Welles was very, you know, Stanley Kubrick-esque where it's like, I want things the way I want it and it's going to be done in my style. So I just found that really interesting. But, you know, they even set up things where it's like, yeah, Orson Welles has got his thing, but you know what? This guy's still evil. And it's like, okay, come on. I think, I think one of the, the biggest issues I have with this movie is that I think someone also mentioned it too, like you need to know a lot about Mank as a person or just the whole like, you know, Raising Kane or just like Citizen Kane and Mank in general. And while I did have knowledge of Citizen Kane, I love the movie. I've seen it multiple times and I have read through part of Raising Kane, but it's like at the same time, if you went in this completely blind, you'd have no idea what's going on, which to me defeats the whole point of this type of film. It's a biography. I'm supposed to learn in some degree. And in, in a weird way, Citizen Kane is like a fictional biography film. You learn all about this guy's life within a span of two hours, flashbacks to his childhood, to when he's running for governor, to when he gets, you know, married, when he, his rise to power and that his ultimate like fall in Rosebud. You, you get it, you, you understand everything. This. Yeah, they try to emulate that Susan Kane style, which I, like I said, I think that's such an interesting idea to do in the modern era, but it's like, it's not done well because you need to know so much about this guy prior to that. So it's like, what's the point then? Why not just tell the story like chronologically? It would have made a lot more sense. And not only that too, like what someone mentioned about the, um, the thing with Upton Sinclair. Yeah, that was way more interesting, but it was like a 15 minute subplot. If that had been the driving force of the movie, that would not only be a lot more interesting because I had no idea about it. And I was like, oh, I would like to learn more about this. How did this influence like, you know, Mank writing Citizen Kane? Cause like it obviously plays a, a large parallel with Kane becoming running for governor. Like it's, it's right there, but it's like, why are you not focusing on that? And- Oh, it was, yeah. It was my favorite part of the movie. Sorry, did you have more? No, no, I'm, I'm done. You, you can go. Um, like, Every time they talked about it, I like tuned in and I was really honed in on it. And like at one point, this is a fun fact, they said everybody was confusing Upton Sinclair with Sinclair Lewis. Well, I was because I'm reading a Sinclair Lewis book. And I was like, I didn't know he ran for governor, but different person. Um, I, um, I kind of like the non-chronological style. I don't think if they just told it from beginning to end, it would have made any sense or been at all interesting to watch just because like there's two very different stories and you kind of have to mesh them together. Um, but in terms of like vilifying Wells, I didn't really see them vilifying Wells that much. Like he seemed a bit like a control freak, which I mean, if you're in Hollywood, you probably are, especially if you're 24 and given total creative control over all of your projects, like you're going to be an, I'll bleep that. Like it's unavoidable, but like, I don't know. I feel like I haven't read Raising Cain, 
But I think Mankiewicz deserves a good amount of credit for it just because, yes, Wells directed it and acted in it. He deserves most of the credit for it. But also, like, he didn't come up with the idea. He didn't lay it out. He didn't do like this. Like, I feel like writers, writers are sort of the butt of jokes a lot in Hollywood, which is fine. Like, they signed up for it. But also, like, iconic lines don't come from directors. They come from writers or actors who forgot their lines. But, like, you know, I don't know. I have I, no baggage coming into it. I agree with that. I think I didn't. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I, I, I was about to say, I've, for me, them kind of vilifying, uh, I was about to say Kane, but Orson Welles, like I didn't, to me, that wasn't a huge problem. I mean, I had some issue with it, but at the same time, it's like Orson Welles is not in the movie very much because obviously it's about Mink. That's what we're watching the movie about. Orson Welles kind of comes in like throughout the, like, throughout the movie like sort of like calling him and at the end he kind of has like that freak out being like no like you can't have credit or something like that like i forgot what exactly what it was it, it was kind of i didn't really like the ending particularly but aside from that's like i didn't i didn't have much of a problem because he's barely in it in a way it's kind of like okay i understand like i kind of understand where orwell is coming from it's like what, what calvin said he was like 24 given all this creative control to make this movie so of course he would be kind of like you know an a-hole and full of himself to some degree and also Orson Welles did the famous War of the Worlds drama fears fears prior and he was like he's he was kind of like this he was he was kind of a popular figure at the time so maybe like it was a bit of like an ego issue too so I don't know to me it was an interesting way to look at it I don't want to make it seem like you know I'm stepping on writers and what they do they obviously do a lot of work and it takes a lot of time but they're that scene where Wells is screaming at the end and he like throws the liquor box and it smashes against the wall. I'm like, you know, maybe that does happen. And I bet it has many times, but I'm like, I don't know. I feel like, again, that could have been historically accurate to what the actual conversation was, but you know, I don't know. It just felt very weird. And they were trying to make him like a baby when he clearly wasn't, he was like, there's a reason this dude kept getting work. And he was like, so, you know, hot and like people wanted him he was someone that people wanted to work with so i feel like you know he's a businessman and if someone is you know not delivering what are you gonna do you have a lot of money on the line you have total creative freedom you got to make sure you're getting your things done when they need to get done and if you know some drunk can't do it i think you have the right to freak out but like the way they made him freak out i was like i don't know that's a little much a little over dramatic it is yeah it's it's so melodramatic and the way it like um shamelessly like portrays scenes from like Citizen Kane is happening around Mankiewicz and it's like trying to say like oh it's you know almost like really about him or by about like stuff that happened around him like that is just like an irritating like biopic cliche um and like on the question of like Wells bashing it's like you know Citizen Kane's like the one movie and maybe this is like just a known fact but the one movie where he got like full creative control because immediately after that he was, you know, he did not keep getting work, at least as a director from the studios. He only got work as an actor. He was pretty much like, you know, it's a bit of an extreme word, but he was pretty much blacklisted. And so he had to get work as an actor to then self-finance these movies. That's why many of them were unfinished. So for me, that's kind of why, if it seems like I am a little sensitive to, you know, Wells bashing and other people on the internet are a bit sensitive to it. It's just because it almost seems like um, this movie's like another excuse to like kind of bag on him or like to uh, for Hollywood to kind of like spread these kind of like falsehoods about him when they already like you know after he created like one of the best films in Hollywood they already were like wanted nothing to do with him 
and I just kind of wish that there was a way to like tell Mank's story without like falling back on cliches like that. That's why like I um, think that the bit in the middle, uh, the whole Upton Sinclair storyline is the most interesting part. Cause to me that felt like the most fresh. It felt like, you know, the, there was the most conflict for Mank as a character in that section because he is a little like, I think conflicted about like, you know, faking these interviews and editing together you know, um, these newsreels. Uh, and I didn't really feel that kind of like dramatic stakes elsewhere in the movie. Like even at the part at the end where it's supposed to be the climactic scene, which I also thought was hilarious where he basically drunkenly explains Citizen Kane in front of Hearst. And I was like, I feel like I'm supposed to be feeling in this scene that there's going to be a big confrontation between the two of them. And then he just tells him like this, I don't know, this like, story about the um the organ grinder monkey and I was just like that's it you know and it's like it felt like it was supposed to be playing into this big melodramatic moment and then it just kind of fizzled out um so yeah I mean I I don't know like I was kind of like again I think other people have said this that like um the pacing is really weird and I think that there are like sections of the movie where it feels like there's kind of a dramatic weight to it but for a lot of it, it just kind of felt a little formless to me. Like that scene with the gun. I was like, did he count those bullets? Because like, I feel like, you know, you would count those. First of all, why would you take the bullets and not the gun? That doesn't make any sense to me. But like, I was like, I don't know. They, he, I feel like in movies, you always make sure to count the bullets, especially with a David Fincher movie when they have kind of, he has elements like that in his other movies. I don't know. That was like, that had some like dramatic elements. So I was like, oh my God, you know, that guy still probably has like an extra bullet he hit or something. But yeah, that scene at the very end with the confrontation, he does like this whole rant and then it's like, okay, good night. And I was like, oh, come on. That wasted like 10 minutes of the movie. So it was very anticlimactic. Yeah, I mean, I really have to agree with like a lot about the Sinclair stuff. I feel like that's this thing that really made the movie for me. It was the setting um, because... I think out of films that are technically so, so love letters to Hollywood, they don't really explore like the issues of Hollywood at that time. I mean, some do, like um, I think My Week with Marilyn kind of did and maybe a bit of last year's Judy did too. Um, but I know like it didn't explore like the studio part, like really taking on um, Louis B. Mayer and Randolph Hearst and like how much control they initially had like the scene um like kind of like talking about how the great depression was happening and they're going to be making cuts and then apparently there's this scene where um Oldman is at the beach with his wife and he hears like oh that voice sounds familiar like I found that part to be interesting because and even though Hearst is not really in the movie that much and Charles Dance isn't really I wouldn't say leaves an impact in terms of his performance. You do feel like a lot of like the how big of a media mogul he was because at the time Randolph Hearst had a lot of control over the media. And it is kind of like that generation set Jeff Bezos, except for Jeff Bezos doesn't really have control over the media, but you kind of get what I'm saying, where he had a lot of control, like in terms of what, what news was delivered, what news wasn't. And he was probably one of the big key parts of why Citizen Kane really bombed at the box office at that time. Because Hearst didn't, Hearst didn't like movies that really didn't like anything that was going to be slandering him. And so I found that part to be interesting because 
and how big of a media influence Hearst had over in that election between Sinclair and Merrick, while also really showing like how corrupt some studios were even during the golden age of Hollywood. And I really found that part, probably the biggest thing that really took me, really brought me into the movie. It's like, oh, wow, this is actually a pretty good explained well part of the history of Citizen Kane and why it was written because Hearst was a, was a pretty savage guy. So I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Uh, final thoughts? Unfortunately, we're out of time because we all talked a long time about this movie. But final thoughts on Mank? This came across as a little pretentious to me with like a story that needs to be fleshed out more. Maybe as a small uh, limited series for Netflix, I think that could have been better having an episode focused, you know, four or five episodes. I think that could have been more interesting. I think the more I thought about it throughout um, our conversation, the idea of filming a movie that's supposed to look like a 40s movie, but on 4K and not like film, that just comes across as very pretentious to me. It's like, well, you know, we can do it, but our own way. It's like, eh, I don't know. The bashing of Orson Welles was a bit much and they just, you know, they tried to make him seem like a villain when really he was a businessman and there was a lot of money on the line and he had a reputation. And so if someone can't deliver, you know, you can't just be like, well, okay. So yeah, I thought there were some elements that were really entertaining, but you know, very few that, you know, make me want to go back and watch this again. This was probably David Fincher, at least the movies I've seen of his, his weakest work. And it was very different too. And I don't know, his style just didn't feel like it was in this one minus a couple scenes, like the bullet scene. Overall, um, it, it was rather disappointing because I, I was really hoping this would be like one of my favorites of 2020, given the talent behind it, given the director. And to, to be honest, like a lot of this, a lot of the stuff in this movie I liked. I, I think the overall idea of telling the story in this way could have been really interesting. And we could have learned a lot more about Mank than what was presented. But overall, it's like, it's, it's really bogged down by just really poor pacing and a really awkward structure. And overall, it's just like, I feel like they want, and like I said, the biggest issue is that you need to know about Mank before going into this movie, where I think the movie's goal was to make you learn more about the guy. So they kind of messed up there. Overall, I still think it, it's not a bad movie by, by any means. I, and I struggle to even call it like mediocre because there's some really good stuff in it. Like I said, I think visually it's stunning. I like the music a lot. I like the production design a lot. I think pretty much all the acting is really great, but it's bogged down by a not so great script. And for that reason, like it, it was kind of a disappointment. I think I would give it a six out of 10. I, uh, I'm gonna give it a solid B, maybe a B minus. I just, it was boring, it was dull. The best part of the movie was Bill Nye and he was in it for 10 minutes or less, he was in it for two minutes. Um, I think some of the performances were good. I think like trying to edit like the 40s was fun, but it got out of hand when they put the like real burn cigarette burns in the top right corner for some reason when it was just distracting and stupid. Um, maybe I would have liked it more in a theater where it looked like it was on film or like if they played it on film and it was like actually needed those, but I don't know. It was boring and I'll probably never watch it again. Citizen Kane is better. Yeah, hot take, Citizen Kane is 
actually really good. And uh, the whole runtime, I was like, I'd rather be watching Citizen Kane than this. Um, or alternatively, I'd rather be watching a better movie about Hollywood like Hail Caesar or The Player that I think go in those more critical directions that this movie sort of just hints at. Um, yeah, I mean, I have the same problem uh, as Orson mentioned with the visuals and also uh, I think that extends for me to the music. There just wasn't a lot for me to like, I think really get invested in with this. And also, you know, I know it might've sounded like I was uh, trashing Gary Oldman earlier, but I, I do for the most part like him. And he, you know, even in a lesser kind of film like Darkest Hour or something, he's still able to usually give an energetic, not energetic, but an entertaining performance. And in this one, um, when he's just at the center of it, he's not given a lot of material to work with. And he just, you know, seems really tired and bored. And that honestly reflects the way um, I felt for much of the movie too. I, um, again, yeah, it just didn't feel like there was a lot of conflict. I think you have a lot of potential for, you know, Hearst as like a good villain um, or the Sinclair storyline as like some good dramatic tension. Um, but, you know, th there wasn't enough of that in the movie. And I was just, you know, kind of found myself constantly looking at my watch being like, okay, how much more of this is left? Um, I think Fincher is best when he's working in those kind of established genres like the thriller um, or the true crime thing or the true crime subgenre. So uh, yeah, I kind of hope for more, more of that, less of this from him in the future. Yeah, I'm obviously in the pretty big minority for this movie um actually out of out of the five of us i mean i i liked this movie i really liked gary oldman's performance i really liked how they portrayed the setting at this time and i really and i really liked oh how some of this actually did connect to the original the original first draft of citizen kane i mean i do agree with like a lot of like the fact that i wish they did use film instead of digital 4k i mean that like I said, that was a bit distracting. But for the most part, I really enjoyed this movie. And obviously I'm a huge minority, but I really liked this movie. Far better than Milan by a mile. <laughs> Ironically, I actually don't think you're a minority. I think you're very much in the majority. It's just the people on this call are all a part of the minority. <laughs> but yeah, thanks for listening. I've been Calvin. I've been Matthew. I've been here. And, uh, oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> and uh, we will see you all next time. Bye bye.